0: Well, church, it is a privilege to, uh, to preach this morning on Christmas. And uh, we're going to read our, our passage right off the bat this morning. So if you would uh, stand with me, if you are able, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 this morning. So hear this, the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil took him to a very high mountain And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I think it's rare that you'll come to church on Christmas and hear the passage of the temptation of Jesus. It may seem weird. Why are we looking at this this morning? Why are we here? But I think Christmas, the arrival of Christ, and His temptation actually go hand in hand quite well. His temptations and the successful denial of those temptations, they go far deeper than Him just showing us how to say no to temptation far deeper because we are beset by temptation every single day I mean practically every moment are we not I mean we have our flesh the world around us and an enemy Satan who are all bringing temptation to us so temptation is constant and so Jesus' temptation and his success in his temptation is important for us to see as a model but it is going deeper it's going deeper We're gonna see three big things in Jesus's temptations this morning. We're gonna see that we have a God who has succeeded where we have failed. He's our substitute. But also, we're gonna see we have a God who's not only succeeded but helps us succeed as a result of his temptation. He equips us, so he's our substitute, he equips us. And thirdly, we'll see that we have a God who can relate to us. In other words, he sympathizes with us. We'll see that third thing. Now, we're actually going to see those things after we walk through the temptations. We're going to spend kind of the first half looking at the temptations of Jesus and then we'll see kind of okay, what are we what are the results? All those three things are the results of his temptation. But specifically, I'm excited to talk about his sympathy and how he sympathizes with us. You see, I am a big fan of Superman. And uh you know, I'm, I'm a nerdy guy. You guys, you guys get that. And I, I love comic books, but here's the reality: I've read very few comic books. I kind of like the idea of comic books and superheroes, and I talk a big game, but I, I don't. I've never owned a comic book. I've never, never read them really, uh, but I like them. And I certainly like movies and reading Wikipedia about them. That's fun. Uh, but I, I love Superman. I always have. And one of the criticisms that people have of Superman is they're like. How can you relate to Superman, and why, why would you be interested in him as a hero? Because he's just so perfect. Everything about him is awesome. Like, he's powerful. He doesn't have any, like, character flaws or anything like that. Why would you want him to be your hero? He can't understand you, and you can't understand him. And sometimes we take that type of thinking and we apply it to Jesus. Like, how could Jesus really sympathize with us? After all, he is God. So when we look at his temptations, how can these have any impact on us? After all, I don't think any of you have really been tempted to make stones turn into bread or to throw yourself off a building to have angels rescue you or think that you could actually have the the kingdoms of the world under your authority. I've never had those temptations. I can't do those things. And so as we look at Jesus' temptations, are they really temptations that we would face? Are they temptations that give us a Savior? A Savior who can relate? And I think the ultimate answer is yes. And all of this is important because of Christ's humanity. And it's Christmas where we are reminded of that very fact that we have a God who put on flesh. Infinity has clothed himself with finitude. Jesus coming in the flesh makes everything about our spiritual life possible. So let me pray, and we will dive in together. Father, help us to have soft hearts and open ears so that we may understand what you have for us this morning. Give me clarity of speech and clarity of mind as I preach. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's dive back into our passage. We have our first two verses where Jesus is led by the Spirit, and He's tempted, and He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what I want you to see in these first two verses here is that Jesus' temptation is supposed to be a parallel of what happened with Israel in the wilderness. You have this idea of wilderness and the number 40 popping up right there in the beginning. And so Matthew is drawing our attention to Israel's past because Israel was saved out of slavery in Egypt, was declared to be God's son And they go into the wilderness where they basically fail at their temptations. They fail at their temptations. And they're there not 40 days, but 40 years. But this number 40 is incredibly important. So we have this at the very beginning. But also the three responses that Jesus has to Satan aren't just, hey, he knows his Bible well and he's using appropriate scripture. That's true. But Jesus is actually pulling from a very particular place in the Old Testament. All three of his quotations come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. In that section, Moses is talking to the people of God. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is both reflecting back on their time in the wilderness and telling them how they need to live when they go into the promised land. And so all three times that Jesus quotes Scripture, he's quoting from what Israel needed to do when they went into the land and how they ought to have lived as God's faithful son. That is no mere coincidence. I mean, Jesus could have pulled all sorts of verses when Satan is tempting him, but he goes to a very particular place. And so Matthew is saying a very particular thing about who Jesus is, specifically that he is God's faithful son. He's God's faithful son. Okay, so Jesus is lining up with Israel, and I want to hit one more thing, and that is Jesus keeps, or sorry, Satan keeps saying, if you are the Son of God. And sometimes we'll come to that, and we think, oh, Satan is trying to cause Jesus to doubt whether he is the Son of God. Now, the underlying Greek doesn't allow us to do that. In Greek, there's different types of conditional statements, kind of if-then statements. This is a first-class conditional. That's a fancy word for it, first-class conditional. And what it means is that it's assuming the statement is true. So Satan is not coming and saying, well, if you're the Son of God, you could come and do this. Can you do this, Jesus? Prove it. He's not saying that. Instead, Satan is trying to get Jesus to reflect on what it means that he is the Christ and to use his Sonship in a way that is against or inconsistent with the mission of God. He's like, well, if you're, if you're the Messiah then you need to do this. That is what Satan is saying. You need to exert your power. You need to show yourself to be able to do all these things. Not, you need to do these things to prove that you're the Messiah. He's saying, you're the Messiah, so this is how you ought to live. And Jesus comes back and fights against every single one of those things because he's saying, no, this is what it means to be the Messiah. So we're going to look at each one of those things. So let's dive into the first one, okay? All right, so the first one's up here. Hey, turn these bread or these stones into bread. Turn these stones into bread. Ultimately, this is the temptation to not trust in what God has said, especially when it comes to suffering. Not trusting what God has said, especially when it comes to suffering. Jesus is hungry, he's suffering. And Satan says, Hey, you don't need to trust what God has said here about about relying on him, you just come do your own thing right here. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God made Israel hungry in the wilderness and he gave them manna to test them in their faithfulness and they often failed while they were in the wilderness with this manna. They grumbled and they complained about it. They wanted meat. They're like, hey, God doesn't really care about us. They grumbled over and over and over again. And Moses is telling them in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, hey, you need to live by what God has said. Don't trust in bread and in what you have. Trust in what God has said. God says that He cares for you. Will you trust in that? That's what Moses is saying. And so Jesus picks this up and says, no, no. The Spirit has led me here to fast, and so I will faithfully fast, and I will endure this faithfully. I don't need to bypass suffering. Instead, I will endure it, and I will be faithful. I will trust that what God has said is indeed enough. Do we trust God in the midst of trials as His children? That's the same temptation for us. Think modern examples. You know, not many of us are going hungry on a regular basis. But do we trust God with our finances, our relationship status, our health? And not that we don't want those things to be good. Not that we don't want to be in a financially secure position or to have health that's not falling apart. But do we despair when those things aren't where we want them to be? Do we trust that what God says is enough? So for example, let's say I'm struggling financially and a higher paying job comes around, but it's going to require me to work on Sunday morning so I can't be with my church family. Or it's going to require me to work more to where I won't be able to invest in my church family. Do I trust that what God has said about relying on Him and His ability to provide for me, do I trust that that's enough? And that maybe I don't need as much physical provision because being a part of the body is more important. Do I trust Him in that? Or let's say you're a single person And there's somebody you really like. And you're really lonely and you don't want to be lonely anymore. But that person you really like and maybe they're interested in you, they don't really know Christ. They don't walk with him. They don't love him. Do we trust that what God has said is enough? And that it is better to be single and have Christ than to pursue a non-believer and get into an unequally yoked relationship and trust, or and, and have our life be torn apart as a result do we trust that what he has said is enough that's the first temptation well then we get this second temptation that Jesus walks through Satan takes him to the temple and tells him to throw himself down Satan kind of picks up on what Jesus has done he says okay you trust what God has said you you, you're trusting that man will not live by bread alone but in every word that comes from God it's like okay I know how to play this game I know scripture. I've got it all memorized. I'm Satan after all. So Satan starts to use scripture. And he's tempting Jesus to to test God's protection and love. Because what is Satan actually quoting? He's quoting Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is not really a messianic psalm. Some people will take it to be that. But Psalm 91 actually in general is talking about the righteous man and how God cares for the righteous man how God protects the righteous man. So Satan says, okay, you trust in what God has said? Well, God has said he's going to protect the righteous man and you as the son of God, surely God would protect you if you were to throw yourself off this temple here. He will command his angels concerning you. You're not going to get hurt. Basically, this is the same lie or question that Satan says in the garden. Did God really say starts twisting what God is saying, starts making it into something else. Did God really say, does God really love you, Jesus? Does God really love you, child of God? I don't think Satan is tempting Jesus with trying to gain a crowd. Like if he were to throw himself off, the angels would rescue him and then all would, all the people would see that and would see Jesus as the Messiah, I don't think that's what Satan is doing here. I think it's more along the lines of, okay, we'll see if you really, test, or you really trust what God has said. If you really loved me, God, you would do this. But that's not the mission that God has given his son. The father gave the son a mission of suffering and of dying on the cross for us. And Jesus doesn't get to bypass that mission. I think a similar, We, we do this with God, well we do this in our own lives and I think we can understand how we do it with God when we see this. It's Christmas time so we're receiving gifts from one another. If, say you're a married person and you say, you get, you open a gift from your spouse and you were to say, well if you really loved me you would have gotten this other thing over here. That may or may not have been expressed in slightly different words yesterday in my house, and it was not by rocks, so I'll let you, uh, I'll let you decide who said that. Yeah, those of you who were last night, that's, who were here last night and heard me talk about it, that, that, is, uh, that is what I said, or at least implied in something that I said. But that's what we do with God. God, if you really loved me, you would do this in my life. You would take this away. You would make my life be different. You would give me this gift. And that's what Satan is saying to Jesus. It's interesting, when Jesus is on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, the people who are standing around him say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This temptation pops up again. But Jesus' response comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And in Deuteronomy 6, 16, Moses is saying, hey, don't put God to the test. You put God to the test when he brought you out of Egypt. One of the first things that Israel did when they were brought out of Egypt in Exodus 17 was complain about not having water. They actually say to Moses, Moses, you brought us out of Egypt to die here from thirst. They literally say that. And they're rebuked because of that. But God, in his mercy, does give them water. And then later on, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is saying, hey, you tested God when you did that. When you were grumbling about not having water. And he says, moving forward, as we go into the promised land, don't say, God, if you really cared, you would bring this thing. Do not put God to the test. So Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I know that God loves me. I'm trusting in what he says. And because I trust in what He says, I'm not going to put Him to the test. I don't need to throw myself off of the temple to prove that God actually has my back. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to go to the cross because I know that God has my back. And I trust that God is so good that He will give me resurrection because I am innocent. The resurrection proves that Jesus was justified in what He was doing. Got off my notes a little bit there. I got too excited. Sorry. (laughs) One of the things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, when he's arrested, he says that his father would send angels if he appealed to him. But then how could the scriptures be fulfilled? In other words, Jesus' mission could not succeed unless he was willing to walk through the suffering and the arrest, the betrayal, the death that the father had for him. So may we also understand this temptation when it comes and have eyes to see and ears to hear God if you really loved me I wouldn't find it so hard at work. I wouldn't find it so difficult to work with my to get along with my spouse or work with your spouse in case you work with them God I wouldn't find it so hard to be single I wouldn't find my kids to be such a burden or to find it so difficult to raise them or how about this one God? I raised my kids in the church and they love you and you've sent them to the other side of the world to serve me or to serve you, excuse me. And that's really hard. I've heard that uh, from parents before as I was watching college students go off into the mission field. And that always baffled me because I thought, wow, what a joy it is or would be to have children that would go into the mission field. And I know that some of you have children who have gone into the mission field. And there's that tension where you don't get to be with your child. And there's a temptation to say, God, why my child? But we know that God is doing a good thing through them. And so although we are not with them for a season, all the glory that you will get to experience with them in heaven as you see the fruit of their labor. What a joy. What a joy. Okay, so that's our second temptation. Let's keep going. Third temptation. There's a temptation to basically worship another God in order to get what we want or to to what we think we deserve. So to worship another God in order to get what we want over here or what we think we deserve. That's what Satan says to Jesus. Like, hey, come and worship me and I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the world. I'm going to give you this authority, this power, this glory. Jesus should have had all of those things. Jesus is owed all authority and glory and power, all the kingdoms of the world. And the temptation is to offer allegiance to a false god in order to get what he wants and deserves. Basically taking a shortcut. Bypass the cross, Jesus. Don't go to the cross over there. You can have it all right now. Sounds familiar for us. Don't walk through all the suffering and hard work. Just get over just just have this goodness over here. Get over here and worship me, and you can have it all. Jesus responds from Deuteronomy 6:13, just a few verses prior to what we read. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. You see, Israel had failed at this as well. They had worshipped the golden calf in the wilderness. And Moses is directing their eyes to the future and saying, Worship God. God alone. Worship Yahweh alone and things will go well with you in the land. And so Jesus picks up on this and he says, worship God alone. That's going to be me. I am going to be faithful. I do not need to worship you, Satan. Even though you offer me a path that avoids the suffering and death, I will worship God alone no matter where it takes me. Because I trust that there is a life to come and that my God is good and he will save and protect me. Now one of the really interesting things, when you fast forward to the end of Matthew, and you see, a th- like, uh, you see the themes at the end of the book, you know, often themes are introduced at the beginning and the end. You know, if you're reading a book and you want to know kind of what's the book all about, read the first and last page. Oftentimes that'll sum it up for you. So here's the very end of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. There's Galilee again, we've been talking a lot about Galilee. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Satan tempted Jesus with worship. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, there's that, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here at the end of the book, Jesus gets all authority. He gets all the kingdoms satan tempted him with the kingdoms of the world but what does jesus finally get after he walks through the suffering of the cross he gets all the nations of the world all that he was tempted with he follows the lord and eventually receives it he eventually receives it he receives authority worship the kingdoms of the world he didn't bypass the cross Satan tempts us with authority and glory if if we worship him. Now, usually for us, he doesn't come right out and say, hey, worship me, Satan, become a Satanist, and I'll give you everything you ever wanted. It's a lot more subtle with us sometimes, is it not? God doesn't need your full and complete devotion, does he? You don't need to be one of those Jesus freaks. You don't need to, you know, read your Bible every day. You don't need to spend time in devotions with your family you know, you can just kind of do this whole Christian thing half-heartedly. He tempts us, Satan tempts us in those little ways where it sounds kind of like, oh, you know, I can, I can cheat here, I can do this little thing over here. And meanwhile, he's capturing more and more and more of our allegiance. It Jesus, he just kind of came right out and was like, hey, tempt, worship me. That's your temptation. But with us, it's little by little, piece by piece. Now, this praise be to God. Our Savior said no to this. We have a Savior that said, Be gone, Satan, that resisted temptation. He was faithful where we were faithless. Israel failed on all three of these accounts, not just in the wilderness, but throughout their history. I mean, they, they stunk. And if we take an honest assessment of our lives, we often stink at these things too. But praise be to God. Jesus succeeded where we have failed. Jesus is the true, faithful Son of God. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about out of Egypt, I called my son, called my son? And here again, Matthew is showing. Jesus is the true faithful Son of God. He is the true Israel, the true hope of the world. So when the Scriptures talk and teach about Israel and the glory that's to come, that's all embodied in Christ. And we get to participate in it. And hallelujah, because that is good news for us. We see here in verse 11, this affirmation that Jesus has succeeded. Angels came and were ministering to him. The devil left him. What good and beautiful news for us. Now, these temptations are a little different than what we would expect in the sense of we, we would think that if God were to come to earth, he would come with all power and he would conquer he would act like a Superman, right? That's what we would expect. You know, if you were to walk up to somebody on the street, somebody not a Christian, and say, hey, what would God be like if he came? What kind of power would he exhibit? Would he turn stones into bread? i will be like, oh yeah, poof, there's bread. We would expect that from God, would we not? Wouldn't we expect him to make a spectacle throwing himself off, the, off some high building? Wouldn't we expect him to say, yeah, God's going to save me wherever because I am God? wouldn't we expect him to say all of the nations of the world should come and worship me? We would expect that of God himself if he were to come and put on flesh. But God's mission on this world was not to do all of those things. God's mission was to rescue us from our sins, and ultimately one day he will have all of those things, but to get there he walks through suffering and he walks through the cross. So, Let's talk about these, these results that we have as a result of Jesus resisting these temptations and having all of these things. It's three main things, and I mentioned them up top. We're going to spend most of the time talking about the middle one, but the first one is that Jesus is our substitute. He has been faithful in our place. Jesus is, or Matthew is making a point to say Jesus is faithful where we are faithless. He is our substitute. Our acceptance with God is not dependent upon our ability to say no to temptation. That doesn't mean us saying no to temptation is unimportant. We've talked about this before. Us saying no to temptation is evidence of God's work in our lives, but it is not the justification of God's work in our lives. So Jesus has been faithful in our place, he is our substitute. Secondly, and spend more time on this, he relates to us in our temptation. He sympathizes with us. And I've talked about this before, and I also know that PR talked about it uh, last year as he was going through Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest and understands temptation. We're going to look at a verse uh, with that here in a moment. But Jesus is fully man. Jesus put on flesh. And this is where the reality of Christmas intersects with his temptations. Because Jesus' temptations mean nothing if he is not human, if he's not walking through the temptations that you and I actually experience. God had to experience what we experienced to be victorious in what we needed to be victorious in for his sacrifice to mean anything. A few weeks ago, I said, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. That's Gregory of Nazianzus. You may remember that from a few weeks ago. Jesus needed to be fully man. And Christmas is a reminder that the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity who eternally existed, put on flesh. When we looked at Philippians 2, we talked a lot about that. He didn't become less divine, but he added to himself a human nature, willingly. There was a moment in time when the God of the universe breathed the first breath. Think about that. That Jesus Christ as a little baby, breathed in that first breath and let out a cry. He had tiny little hands. If you've ever held a baby or let a baby kind of wrap his or her fingers around your finger, I mean, it's the cutest thing in the world. But to imagine that the God of the universe allowed himself to be a baby, a small thing, and not just a small thing—that's, you know, a, a, a baby that's delivered after nine month, months pregnant—but at one point in ta- a time, the God of the universe was an embryo, teeny tiny. You can only see it with like a microscope. Tiny. At one point, was this big. You know, when when you're pregnant, you, uh, nowadays you, you get the kind of those email updates where they tell you your baby is this big now. You know, it's the size of an avocado. Now it's the size of a cantaloupe. Does, you know, there's stages in between, obviously. But but the God of the universe decided to be that size, totally and fully dependent upon a mother. That's wild. I, I mean, I, you think of God of the universe, he would come down in glory the way he will when he returns. He said, no, I'm going to go through the entire human experience. The entire human experience. The God who cannot change willingly took on a human nature and in his human nature experienced change. The God who cannot suffer took on a human nature and in his human nature willingly suffered for you and for me. He became hungry. I also know he became tired. <laughs> so tired he's sleeping in the storm, during a storm in a boat. Fully limited like you and me yet at the same time fully dependent on God. Now that may raise you, bring the the question. Oh, sorry, I actually have this. That was the first one. Jesus substitutes for us. Jesus sympathizes. That's the one we're on now. And that may raise the question. Okay, Jesus is God, he's man. But we get this verse in James, says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So then how in the world... Can Jesus actually be tempted? How do these temptations from Satan mean anything? Because then you get this verse from Hebrews, which you may remember from your walk through Hebrews with PR uh, over the past year. Verse uh, 15 of chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How do those two things go together? How can God not be tempted? But then we have other scripture that says, hey, guess what? Jesus was tempted. And elsewhere in Hebrews, it tells us Jesus is the exact radiance of God the Father. He is God himself. How do we do this? I think ultimately, what the church fathers have told us and what the scriptures teach is that Jesus was tempted in his human nature. It's not his divine nature that's being tempted, but in his human nature, the ways that he is like us. That is how he is being tempted. His divinity is not tempted, but his humanity is. Now, there is a key, I don't know if I want to call it a difference, but maybe facet of Jesus' temptation that we need to look at. Because our temptation comes from within us. It comes from our sinful desires. The Scriptures tell us that. James speaks later that, hey, you know, you sin because you've got these temptations that come out of your heart. We also have a wicked world around us and we have Satan but a lot of times it's coming out of us. Jesus' temptation did not come from a wicked heart, but came from Satan and the world around him. His temptation came from without, and he resisted all the way. I've shared this quote from C.S. Lewis before. Well, not a quote, I don't have the exact quote, but C.S. Lewis talks about how we have been tempted and don't really know what it's like to go the full distance in temptation. We give in pretty quick. Jesus went his whole life being tempted all the time and never gave in. Imagine, and, and so he understands temptation far better than we do. Far better than we do. It's like uh, if you were getting ready to run a marathon and we're lined up and Jesus is here with us. The gun goes off and you start running. You know, we make it a few steps. We're like, oh, I'm tired. I'm, I'm tapping out. I'm done. You know, hey, I, I can't make it the race. And then Jesus goes and runs 26.2 miles. Jesus understands temptation far better than you and I understand temptation because he's gone the distance so yes his temptation doesn't come from a wicked heart it comes from the world around him but that doesn't make it any less strong he endured it his entire life we have a high priest who can relate he sympathizes with us and Christmas reminds us of that we have a high priest who can relate he resisted all the way but not only that, lastly, he helps us walk through our temptation. He equips us. He equips us in our temptation. Jesus equips. We printed our service orders like two weeks ago because Talitha was going to be out. So that's why there's no notes on the back. So if you don't follow along today, that's totally fine. But Jesus equips. I want to go back to, um, I want to, go back to this Hebrews verse because it's this, uh, Hebrews 4.15 is not the end of the story. Jesus resisted temptation, but he also gives us help to resist temptation as well. We have his spirit living in us, enabling us to say no. So let's read Hebrews 4, 15 again, and this time with 16 along with it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Why? that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find help in time of need. Jesus was tempted and walked through that, so he sympathizes, he understands, and out of his sympathy and understanding of us, he then equips us, he walks with us. The Holy Spirit that he gives us walks with us and through temptation. You know, we as a culture are fascinated by demonic possession. We're like, ooh, demons, like, they can possess people. That's crazy and wild. And that absolutely is. The scriptures talk about demonic possession. And when, they're in, when people are possessed, we see this idea of, like, they get added strength and they're crazy and all this stuff. And we forget that we also have a supernatural possession. Every single Christian is supernaturally possessed by the Holy Spirit. And we don't just get, well, I don't think we get any physical strength. At least I haven't gotten any physical strength. But we get a supernatural spiritual strength where we can say no to temptation. Where when we look at how Jesus said no to temptation, we are able to do that too. We are able to say no to Satan. We can say, "Begone, Satan. And instead of saying, yes, Satan, I'll worship you, we say, no, I'm going to worship Christ because he is my Savior. He gives us the strength to say no. Practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, one, we acknowledge the temptation. Hey, a temptation is here. Sometimes we like to kind of be like, I'm not tempted. (laughs) Yes, you are. Just acknowledge that you're tempted. Start there and then confess our desire. Be like, Lord, I'm not pure in this. There's part of me, it may even be an itty bitty part, but there's part of me that wants this. And Lord, I confess to you that that's sin, that I shouldn't desire that. But then thirdly, cry out for help. Lord, help me. And then when you do that, you move forward by faith, trusting that the Spirit who resides within you gives you the strength to say no. And then as you say no, you turn to the Holy Spirit, into Christ, and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that it was you who gave me the strength to say no. It was not me. That was you. Lord, thank you. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. So acknowledge the temptation. Confess the sin. Cry out for help. Move forward by faith. Thank Christ. So as we wrap up today, here's a response for us. Because when I I was reflecting on how do we respond to this, when we look at Christ's temptation and we think about him putting on flesh, what do we do? Today is real simple. It's just thanking. Jesus, thank you for being faithful where I have been faithless. Jesus, thank you. Just a response of worship. I couldn't think of anything else or more beautiful than that. Lord, I worship you because of who you are because of who you are. We're tempted to try to escape suffering. We're tempted to doubt what God has said. Does he truly love us? We're tempted to take shortcuts and worship the enemy instead of the Lord. But we have a Savior who's our substitute. He equips us and he sympathizes with us. So Jesus, thank you for being faithful when we have been faithless. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that you are a father who sent his son to be faithful where we were faithless. Help us this week to say no to temptation, to say yes to Christ, to say no to Satan, and to say yes to the kingdom of heaven. Father, help us to see in our hearts where we need to turn to you. Thank you that you are faithful to us. You are so good. Pray this all in Christ's name.